0: Welcome to Market Corner Conversations sponsored by Foresight Health. This is where outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Market Corner Conversations is Foresight Health's regular podcast series. It explores the intricacies of market-driven health reform. We dig deep into the U.S. system's structural inefficiencies. We explain how its artificial economics and distorted business models rob the American people of the great healthcare they deserve. We identify and talk with innovative companies that are reinventing healthcare delivery by being better, faster, cheaper, and more customer-friendly. Hello and welcome to Market Corner Conversations. We have a terrific program. Our guest today is David Feigenbaum, who's a very educated young man. He has a medical degree, an MBA, and a master's of science. But even more importantly, he's the author of the new book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action, which just came out and is terrific. Uh, David is a young doctor and former college football player who over his last 10 years has spearheaded the search for a treatment and cure for the rare disease named Castleman's disease. David is now an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and associate director for the Orphan Disease Center co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, co-founder of the National Students of Ailing Mothers and Fathers Support Network. He's been recognized with multiple awards, including Forbes 30 Under 30 for Healthcare and the Rare Champion of Hope Award for Science. In addition to the professional aspect, the last 10 years have been a very personal fight. David spent many of these years fighting for his life, getting a diagnosis, researching treatments, building a collaborative approach to treating his very rare disease and staying as healthy as possible while building a life with his with his new family and if you get the chance to read his book you'll you'll find that he was near death several times and had the the will and the wherewithal to to come through it and then ultimately find the cure to uh, or at least the temporary cure what we hope is a permanent cure to his his disease. Uh, so David, welcome to Market Corner Conversations. It's wonderful to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, it's, it's a real honor.
0: Well, terrific. Well, before we get into uh, the discovery and diagnosis of your disease and all your efforts to fight it, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up, and how you ended up pursuing a career in medicine?
1: Sure, so I, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, And I had always had um, an interest in medicine um, uh, and and had thought about maybe, you know, being a doctor one day, but my real focus growing up was actually training to become a college football player. I I dreamed of one day being a college football player and ended up going to Georgetown to play football. And um, soon after getting there, uh, I found out that my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer, and it just completely just shook me to my core and really turned everything upside down. And uh, within a moment, I went from you know football being my top priority to, to seeing what, what my mom was going through in fighting her cancer and um, struggling to watch her, uh, but also just being really inspired by her physicians who took care of her. And, and I decided that I would um, dedicate my life to becoming a physician, to trying to treat patients like my mom and uh if you fast forward a few years after her passing and and the the challenges that I went through with that, I really channeled my energy towards training to become a doctor. I ended up going um to England for grad school and then coming back to the States for medical school and um There I was, a healthy third-year medical student training to become an oncologist in memory of my mom, to fight cancer uh, in her memory and to treat patients, when out of nowhere I became mysteriously ill and, and, and as you mentioned, nearly died a number of times.
0: Was it in response to your mother's death that you launched uh, and founded the uh, National Students of Ailing Mothers and Fathers Support Network? Just tell us a little bit about that
1: two weeks before my mom passed away, I had a final conversation with her and I told her I would create a group in her memory for other college students coping with the illness or death of a loved one. I didn't know what it would be. And, and I, I, I didn't know um, anything about what I was even really talking about, but I told her mom, I'm going to create it and it's going to be called AMF. My mom's name was Anne Marie Fagan, her initials were AMF. And I, I told her I would create this group in her memory. And, um, after her passing I went on to create a support network called AMF. It stood for Ailing Mothers and Fathers, Students With A with a Sick Parent, um, where students could support one another, get involved in community service. And soon um, students from around the country were contacting me saying, I want to start a chapter on my college campus. Yeah, it really took so off, ex-
0: didn't it? it yeah, really- so
1: we expanded AMF from you know from just one chapter to, to dozens of chapters around the country. We now go by actively moving forward. So, AMF is still doing well and supporting people all over the country, um, but now AMF stands for actively moving forward.
0: And that was before your own uh, personal uh, struggle with, with disease. Well, let's get into that. Why don't you, why don't you tell us about um, what happened, the diagnosis, and and when you realized that doctors didn't have all the answers?
1: So, I was a healthy 3rd year med student, as I'd mentioned, and never had any medical issues whatsoever, and over the course of just a couple weeks, I started noticing I was more tired than usual. I noticed some lumps appearing in my neck, noticed fluid accumulating around my ankles, and just felt really unwell. I didn't know what was going on, but I actually even told one of my roommates, I said, I think I'm dying. That was such an unusual thing for me to say, because I'm, I'm not very dramatic at all, and and I remember my friends being really concerned, you know, what, what's what's going on with Dave? Over the course of the next couple of weeks, I became more and more ill. And I, I ended up taking an exam, a medical school exam, and then going down the hall to the emergency department in the same hospital I'd been treating patients at the University of Pennsylvania. And they ran some blood tests on me, and they said, David, your liver, your kidneys, and your bone marrow are shutting down. We have to hospitalize you right away. And I became extremely ill over the next few weeks. In fact, I had a retinal hemorrhage and went blind in my left eye. I gained 70 pounds of fluid. I was completely unconscious. I was being fed with a feeding tube, on dialysis, transfusions daily, all with no diagnosis. So basically, I was in multiple organ system failure, dying in the ICU at the same hospital that I'd been treating patients at. All with this mysterious illness.
0: So you got temporarily better, but then would have relapses and uh, no one could really tell you what was going on and talk about this next period where you um, figured out ultimately what the disease was, and then tried to search for and find drugs that would would delay it or, or cure it or somewhere in between. I was
1: eventually diagnosed with idiopathic multicentered Castleman disease, which is a, a rare immune system disorder that's kind of like a cross between an autoimmune condition and a lymphoma. In fact, uh, the medical community doesn't know what class to even put it in, so it's very poorly understood. About 5,000 patients are diagnosed each year in the U.S. with Castleman disease, and, and my subtype is the most deadly form of Castleman disease, about a third of us die within five years of diagnosis, another third will die within 10 years of diagnosis. This disease affects individuals of all ages, as young as one-year-old, and uh, so it was a, a frightening diagnosis to receive, but it came just in time, because as soon as I got the diagnosis, I was started on chemotherapy, and I actually was so sick that I had my last rites read to me by a priest, because the doctors didn't think I would survive, and they told my family to prepare to say goodbye to me. And fortunately, the diagnosis happened just in time to start chemotherapy to save my life. And I improved, but as you mentioned, it was a temporary improvement, and then I shortly thereafter relapsed. Um, I would go on to experience a number of subsequent relapses. The only thing that could keep me alive and save my life each time was multi-agent chemotherapy, so a combination of the seven worst chemotherapy agents you can imagine um, just destroying my immune system and and making me... um, quite ill along the way, but but I actually was so sick before each dose of chemotherapy, I actually would feel better after each dose because um, we were finally treating my disease. I was even able to return to medical school, and I was on an experimental drug that we thought would keep my disease in remission, but unfortunately, um, that experimental drug did not work for me, and I relapsed while I was on the only drug in development for my disease And that was a major turning point in my life. I've considered myself in overtime, you know, this extra time, ever since the first time I almost died. But the real turning point for me really came in what I consider my fourth overtime, and that was when I had this major relapse on the only drug in development, and I nearly died again. And this time, I now knew that there were no other drugs coming down the pipeline, there were no promising leads, and there was no research being done that I could be hopeful would lead to a treatment for for myself. And so I promised my sisters, my dad, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, that I would dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to identify treatments or cures for Castleman disease. And for me that was starting a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and we decided to take A new approach to research that hadn't been done before, and also to begin conducting laboratory research at the University of Pennsylvania on the closest samples that I could get my hands on, which were my own.
0: I'm curious, how were they able to... Why don't you talk about the doctor in Arkansas that that was able to diagnose the condition? And I got to tell you, David, I was stunned that there was somebody who was able to diagnose it pretty easily, And yet that knowledge doesn't transfer or flow into the medical knowledge uh, broadly enough so that you were literally in the dark for several years and, as you said, got the diagnosis just in time. But talk a little bit about how you found the doctor at Arkansas uh, and how that transpired.
1: Absolutely. This is, I think, an important lesson in the rare disease space, and that's that there are 7,000 rare diseases that affect 30 million Americans. So many of us have rare diseases, but because each one is so rare, there are relatively few of us, and there's also relatively few doctors that are really experienced with each rare disease. So I always encourage any rare disease patient I encounter to go find the expert, find out who is the person that has the most experience with your disease and, and go to them, find out a way to get to them. And in this case, As you mentioned, I went to Little Rock, Arkansas, and the world's expert for Castleman disease was there, and um, he kind of knew everything there was to know about Castleman disease. It felt so good to be able to trust in him and to trust in the knowledge that he had. But, of course, a year later when I relapsed on basically all of the options that he had at his disposal, um, it was, I think, particularly difficult for me to realize that basically there was no one else and there were no more options Um, and that if I wanted to survive and if I wanted to maybe get married to my girlfriend at the time and and have a family, that I would need to, to turn my hope for a future into action and to start reflecting on what was I hoping for and how could I what could I do to, to make it possible that 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 I was hoping for would actually become a reality?
0: Literally, doctor, heal thyself. Um, are you still working with the institute at the University of Arkansas on on Casimir's disease? And- I
1: am. I work very closely with that institute. I work very closely with Dr. Ree. Um, he's now a colleague of mine. We uh, do a number of studies together. We're co-investigators on the clinical trial right now, and we work incredibly well together. And, uh, you know, he's such a patient-focused physician and such an amazing physician scientist that it's been um, a lot of fun to work together uh, on Castleman disease.
0: He must have been grateful that you wandered into his care uh, along your journey and Uh, Now the two of you are are really creating something special. You're at uh, the point where where medicine, American medicine, uh, is basically saying we don't know what else to do. Um, Keeping you alive requires uh, a treatment that's almost as bad as the disease and and that's even becoming less effective. Um, So you're kind of looking out there and saying, well – I hope there's something. Let me go try and find it. Talk about how you shifted the mindset from where medicine had been going in terms of trying to treat the disease, the path you went down, which is uh, obviously generating some very promising uh, results.
1: After I got out of the hospital that fourth time and, and realized that I needed to, to do something, I spent a good bit of time trying to understand how is progress made for other rare diseases? How does rare disease research move forward and actually it's really just how does research move forward generally is what I was learning about and, and I learned that the, the, the traditional model is that foundations will raise money and then invite researchers to apply to use the money how they see fit and then the best applicant is selected uh, fr- from those who apply and so this approach works really well when you have millions of dollars and you have hundreds of applicants because Of those hundreds of applicants, you're going to find one or a few applicants that are really the most important study that could be done by the most impressive and experienced physician scientist. But when you have a rare disease and you have two or three people applying for your funding and you have $10,000 or $20,000 at your disposal, it's extraordinarily unlikely that one of those two or three applicants is going to be... The person with the best idea for what should be done to research this disease and also have all of the expertise and experience doing that particular kind of research it's just extraordinarily unlikely. So what happens for these rare diseases like Castleman disease is that decades and decades just go by until the right researcher applies for the right project at the right time and then progress is made. It's completely random. And that really shocked me. As a medical student, I kind of believed that maybe there was some order to the research system and that maybe there was some method to the madness. But actually, it really is just a completely random, you hope the right researcher comes up with the right question at the right time and, um, and that person gets funded. And so we decided we wanted to create a much more systematic and proactive approach to funding. And that's where we started out by building a community of patients, physicians, and researchers and we had the community identify and prioritize all of the possible research studies that could be done and should be done for Castleman disease. Then we picked out and we prioritized the top studies that needed to get done, and we went out and recruited the best researchers in the world for those given studies. People who had never even heard of Castleman disease before didn't have any samples, but they were the best person in the world for one of the studies we prioritized, and then we would recruit them into the Castleman's field and give them the samples and the data that they needed and, and the funding they needed to do research. So this is really a, a major shift in just how you do research. You, you get away from hoping and waiting mm-hmm. um, to, to prioritizing and building. We've had a tremendous amount of success just from, from this really paradigm shift, but in, in the, the next thing that I think is really important that we did is as I started to build this network and I started to to take what we call the collaborative network approach, and and right. we now are sharing it with other rare diseases. But as we started out, we realized that it would be really great if we can develop new drugs, uh, you know, that can treat the disease. But what what would be even better than developing a new drug would be finding an existing drug that's already FDA approved for something else right. that right. we could repurpose tomorrow <laughs> instead of waiting ten to twenty years and spending a billion dollars. And so, as an organization and also as a researcher, every time I run an experiment, every time I analyze data, it's always in the setting of, okay, if we're studying this particular communication line or pathway, what drugs exist that already target that, that we can start testing right away in the laboratory, and we can start considering giving to humans, as I said, tomorrow, instead of a decade from now
0: well it, it's really interesting that, that you you talk about this particular use of other drugs because uh, for example in, in cancer treatments we tend to diagnose cancer by organs right lung cancer mm-hmm. breast cancer so on and so forth and yet the cancer is is often opportunistic and it, it's it can strike multiple organs and what's really interesting is the type of tumor and it's fast changing and a uh, a drug that works on a similar tumor in lung cancer could also work on a, um, uh, a tumor in another part of the body. But we've been blinded by mindset to some extent. We only look at other lung cancer patients or so on when if we opened up the spectrum a bit, we could look at similarities in the way the disease actually manifests itself and then find drugs that, that treat those specific types of tumors or other types of disease manifestation. Good for you. And, and so you really believe your, your your bigger contribution is this way of being collaborative in approaching rare diseases broadly?
1: I, I think so. I hope so. I, I want to share this model of this collaborative network approach, and importantly, Um, The collaborative network approach works really well to push forward science, but to really get to answers for patients in the short-term, the collaborative network approach relies on drug repurposing and this concept of utilizing already FDA-approved compounds that are approved for one thing that may actually be a treatment for another thing. And and I I wrote this book, it's called Chasing My Cure, but, but what I hope is that actually through other groups following the similar collaborative network approach and drug repurposing, hopefully it'll help chase a lot of cures. You know, maybe it'll be chasing our cures and it'll help us to get closer to treatments that I mentioned earlier that, that are already available at the nearby CVS that has never been used for your given disease, but but maybe it works on something that is critical to your disease and could help you in the short term.
0: To what extent does the uh, emergence of big data and powerful algorithms enable the type of, I guess, cross-disease research, cross-cure research that you're describing to be more successful?
1: It's incredible the amount of data that are currently available. And as I think about my own journey, so after I I had my my fifth near near death experience, and I went back to the lab and looked at all of the the samples that I'd been storing on myself um, for my previous relapse in the months leading up to that relapse. and I began conducting experiments on my data and going or my samples and going through the data and one of the most critical aspects of the data analysis was going through and looking at the signal in my data, but also understanding. Has that signal been seen in other diseases? And has that signal, what does that signal tell me about particular cell types, signaling pathways? And these are in large databases that other people have generated, um, you know, over the last several decades. And so you're exactly right. It's relying on these sort of big data data sets that exist that helped me to identify this particular communication line uh, as a candidate target. And I think that it's important to remember that big data is great at helping to identify a candidate target or a candidate drug. Um, But it's really important to go from, this is a a promising candidate, to doing some actual experimental work in the lab with that candidate uh, and potentially human samples, and then progressing to, to to patients and actually giving them the drug. And it's important to remember that at each step of the way, candidates can sometimes, from big data, can sometimes be false positives and not actually turn out to be anything. And and, and things you do in the lab can turn out to be false positives. And so it's important to remember that all three steps are critical. And so for me, um, I identified this one particular communication line called the mTOR pathway and a, a strong signal for that pathway in the data. I confirmed it through a laboratory experiment I did on my samples. And then I began taking a drug called serolimus. It was FDA approved over 25 years ago for kidney transplantation. It had never been used before for Castleman disease, but as I mentioned earlier, I was completely out of options. And based on the data that I generated in my lab, I thought that maybe it could work. And it was really emphasis on maybe. Um, certainly had no guarantees, um, but I started myself on it. And um, and now it's been over five and a half years that I've been in remission on this drug. It, it's it's Truly saving and extending my life.
0: So the the three stages are finding the signal amid all the noise, right? Yeah. And, and once you've you've got candidates, uh, then running second stage, running samples uh, on yes. human tissue in the lab, and then if if the drug kind of works through those two stages, it's it's human trials of some form or another.
1: That's right, and that third piece of trials is really important because. Yeah. In the rare disease space, drugs are used off-label quite often. So, so doctors will write a prescription for a drug that may not be approved for that particular disease um, to try to treat the patient, maybe based on laboratory data. But unfortunately, the data is not always tracked. So a doctor tries one drug on one patient, another drug on another patient, but whether it works or not is not tracked systematically. So you, what you said is, is drug trials, and that piece, trial, is important. Yep we need to track whether it actually works so that way we can inform the system so that we can keep you know, trying to use the right drug for the right patient.
0: So I, I think we have a pretty solid understanding of your approach and, and why it makes sense and how systematic and logical it is. Let's um, step back a bit and, and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. These rare diseases, sometimes called orphan diseases, often have a genetic component to them, sometimes are entirely genetic. And because of that, it is possible in in some cases, maybe even many cases, to find various types of, of genetically-based drugs to, to treat these orphan diseases. I was at a program a couple of years ago where Bill Gantz, the former chair of Baxter International and a, an expert in these types of technologies uh, said that he uh, he thought this was the, the greatest period in the history of medicine precisely because the pharmaceutical industry could attack orphan drugs. Just talk now about the funding model and all of the resources that are are flowing in to treat these rare diseases, um, orphan diseases with orphan drugs. And obviously, they come – often with a very big price tag and require lifetime treatment?
1: So I think that it's important to think about this from two perspectives. One is that there are 7,000 rare diseases that affect 30 million Americans, okay. and 95% of those 7,000 rare diseases do not have a single FDA-approved therapy. So, so as a medical community... We've made tremendous progress treating many diseases, and in particular, as as was mentioned earlier, a lot of progress in better understanding how a lot of these rare diseases work, yet 95% of rare diseases still don't have a single FDA-approved therapy. There's a clear, major unmet need in the rare disease space. Um, Now, that's, that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is that for the first time in in quite some time, there's a tremendous amount of interest, biopharmaceutical interest that really began, um, I would say, in the late 2000s, and really particularly over the last decade, where there's been a tremendous interest in advancing drug development for these the 95% of rare diseases uh, that do not have any FDA-approved therapies. And so it's really exciting for, for many specific rare diseases to see the interest and as you mentioned, the resources that are that are being directed towards new drugs, new treatments, and cures, and it's exciting because some of these drugs, gene therapies, and cell-based therapies can actually be curative. As, as you mentioned, there's I guess this third piece of it too, which is cost. <laughs> so there's a major unmet need. Um, there are resources and interest, but uh, but the cost of the drugs that are that are being developed are, are really astronomical. And so as a society, I think that it's it's a real challenge because Um, you know, there is a humongous public health issue here when you have millions and millions of Americans with deadly rare diseases with no options. Uh, However, there's also a crisis when when each one of those treatments cost, you know, a million dollars or more. So I I think that, I think what we, as a rare disease patient, um, and certainly as a rare disease researcher, um, I think that we need to prioritize Continued drug development and continued investigation of these rare diseases. It's really prioritizing repurposing drugs that are already approved for one thing, and potentially, and, and oftentimes they're cheap if they're already generic, and then they'll be cheap for the given rare disease. But if there is not a, a drug that can be repurposed, then I think we need to continue to push forward innovation in the rare disease space, while also making sure that we don't cause another health crisis by um, by, by causing there to be lack of access.
0: One of the things I worry about is uh, the deterioration of our of our antibiotics and the the rise of antibiotic resistant diseases, and we aren't investing as a society in the next generation of antibiotics, so we run the real risk of someday having a pandemic, uh, and so it really does feel like on both ends of the spectrum on the orphan disease spectrum and then on sort of for broad population, that we've got market failure, system failure. We've got resources uh, chasing some things but not others and we're not going about it in a in a consistent fashion. We've spent most of our time obviously talking about orphan diseases and your success in treating your very rare disease. Could you just give us a few thoughts on uh, sort of these broader uh, population health issues, and maybe we can use antibiotics as, as one to talk about how we as a society should be thinking about that as well.
1: I think that you've, you've brought up a really important point uh, within specifically antibiotics, but as you mentioned, there are a number of parallel areas in medicine. So I think there are a couple of challenges here. So first off, it's a short course, so antibiotics by definition are going to be short course therapies. Um, which means that there is uh, as you mentioned earlier uh, some drugs that are that are lifelong uh, certainly have different lifetime values to to different companies so there's the one piece of the short course course the other is that as of right now there isn't a, a major market need <laughs> so there isn't a demand but there will be potentially in the future and so the market doesn't do well with future risk as as a driver for innovation today so i think that especially you know, drugs that maybe you develop and they stockpile for, for potential future resistance, that's where the government and where foundations, I think, need to take a leadership role um, in saying this is unlikely to be something that the market is going to address in the near term, but it's something that we as a society, just as you mentioned, um, have to address uh, so that this doesn't become an issue you know, 10, 20, 50 years from
0: now go back in time but uh, this country was filled uh, with sanitariums to treat tuberculosis and then we came up with a cure and that left a lot of tuberculosis doctors with a, a great education and nothing to do. And they turn their skill into um, into treating heart disease because they'd gotten very used to to going into the the organs, and that's where a lot of our advances in heart disease come from. So, you know, black swan events—you just you just never know. Let's make you czar of uh, of healthcare in America for a day, and um, uh, and or maybe the head of the FDA with the the ability to push through any uh, legislation and regulations you deem. Appropriate. What would you do? I've
1: never, never considered this, uh, this sort of a of a position, and exactly what I would do. Well,
0: since Scott, the job's open, Scott Gottlieb retired, so <laughs> uh, and they haven't filled it yet, so you, you never I, know. I am not <laughs> holding, not holding my breath on that one. But yeah. I,
1: I think that you know you can obviously tell from this conversation that um, that I have two particular. Um, maybe I'll say three areas that I, I think I'm very focused in. One is rare diseases generally and this huge unmet medical need. 95% of the 30 million Americans do not have an FDA-approved therapy. So so rare diseases is obviously one really important focus. Another um, is this concept of drug repurposing. So there's 1,500 drugs that are FDA-approved for at least one condition. Um, however, there are, as I mentioned about 7,000 diseases that don't have any FDA-approved compounds. So how many of those 1,500 drugs might be treatments or cures for the 7,000? And third, I'm very passionate about trying to um, restructure biomedical research to be a bit more efficient and a little bit less um, reliant on hoping and and, and praying and wishing that things line up. I, I think that if I could do anything, it would be something that would address Um, At least two or three of those. There's a a bill that I've supported in the past called the Open Act, which would actually incentivize repurposing drugs. So if you have a drug approved for a common condition and you you do a clinical trial to demonstrate efficacy for a rare condition, then you get six months of additional exclusivity on on your drug before it goes generic, which provides this nice kind of financial incentive um, for companies to look into rare conditions but it also makes sure that this, you know, that these rare conditions, if there's a drug that's already out there that could help them, that that, it, that they get studied. So I, I think that's one where you kind of knock out two of those. There, it's drug repurposing. It's rare. Um, the concept of restructuring biomedical science. That, that's a really tough one because, like I said, our, our primary funder, which is the NIH, is very good at um, at funding really good science because they've got so much money and so many scientists. Are vying for that money that you end up doing a pretty good job of creating competition and and really funding the best research, but it's research by these that actually make up the majority of rare disease funding actually comes from these small and medium foundations they're Hands are kind of tied by this, uh, by the existing approach to research. So I, I mentioned this earlier, but I really do hope that the success that we've had for the disease, identifying this drug that saved my life, we've now moved it on to a clinical trial to give it to other patients. We've identified additional drug targets, a new diagnostic criteria, new treatment guidelines, really been able to have a major. Um, uh, paradigm shift and, and really just an incredible amount of progress for our disease over the last decade because of the approach we've taken. So I'm hoping that, that my book will help to to share this story with many others in the medical space um, and hopefully try to create a little bit of change so that these small, medium foundations can maybe fund science in a different way and, and lead to, to, to more progress.
0: Uh, David, that's a good place to land, an optimistic place to land. So uh, when you become drug czar with full authority, we'll we'll have a much more balanced approach to researching rare diseases and treating them. Uh, we'll fully look at repurposing drugs, and we'll um, make the way that we conduct research much more efficient and effective. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We we obviously wish you the best of luck both personally and professionally. Uh, Remarkable story, remarkable person. Uh, so thank you for participating with us today in, in Market Corner Conversations.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. A real honor to be on with you. And uh, so thankful there are people like you pushing for faster cures and uh, supporting people like me chasing my kids. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Well, our, our slogan is uh, outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. And I think you play by that playbook uh, as well as anybody I've met. So Thanks so much. And, and again, really good luck, David. Thank you. If you're frustrated with health care, if you want to understand how the system is reinventing itself through relentless bottom-up market-driven reform, please subscribe to our podcast at foresighthealth.com. Be a rebel with a cause. Help us fix American health care. Until next time, this is Dave Johnson.